Before we begin, this podcast includes racially sensitive language. Welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast from the State Archives of North Carolina, where archivists connect archival materials to fascinating and true stories from the past. We deliver rare and often overlooked topics related to North Carolina's storied history. Now here's your host, John Haran. Hello and welcome to Connecting the Docs, a podcast about the North Carolina State Archive. I'm your host, John Haran. Today we are exploring what we are calling part two of a journey of an archival record. In part one, we discussed appraising records, and in the next episode, we'll talk about digitization and reference. But today, we will discuss records description, processing, and reformatting. To help me with that, we have two guests on today. First, I have Alex Dowry, State Agency Records Description Archivist. Hi, everyone. And Ruth Cody, head of the Imaging Unit. Hi, everybody. I also wanted to say that I was in Alex's position for a few years uh, prior to her taking that over, so... I might be piggybacking in with her a little bit. That sounds great. Thank you both for being on the show, and let's get started. Once a record is accessioned and enters custody of the archives, what happens to it then? Well, when we accession records, they're actually added to the catalog with basic description right at the time of accessioning. And when this happens, we create a very like bare bones entry. So we'll include like the dates for the records, um, the creator, whoever created the records, We add quantity of the records, and in the archives field, this is what we call extent. We'll log this as either number of containers or in cubic feet. We'll also, with this catalog description, add like a title. So for example, something might be the Commissioner of Agriculture speeches file. We also give the records a call number, or that's essentially like a unique identifier for that specific catalog entry so it can be discovered. And then we'll also include a brief description, and this is what we call a scope and content note. And so for records that are routinely transferred from the functional schedule, this may be copied straight from the functional schedule entry. And then sometimes we also add access restriction notes if these records contain confidential information or anything else that we would need to record so that patrons know how to access the records. And sometimes we're not actually creating a new catalog entry. Sometimes the records are added to existing groups um, or in archival terms, what we would call a series. Yeah, so that's, that's quite in depth. Can you explain and, and sort of define series and, and that whole hierarchy? Yeah, sure. So a series for state agency records is tied to an item on the retention schedule. So let's say if we have speeches coming in from the commissioner's office, like that would be a specific item number. And then that comes in and has its own series. And these series tend to fall under record groups that generally would be like the name of the department. So these commissioner of agriculture speeches file are from the Department of Agriculture. So this series goes under the record group called Department of Agriculture. And if this is the case where we're adding materials to an existing series, we'll generally need to just update the dates if these new materials came in with a different date range from the existing ones. Um, We'll log the number of containers or the new extent, and then we'll also update the description if necessary, if there's anything else that we need to note. Excellent. So why is all this done? Well, the reason we do this is we really want to make these records discoverable and accessible to patrons. And this is basically like a baseline minimum, like what we do when we're accessioning, because we realize that this may be all the processing that a record gets. 
Wait, so you said processing. Can you go into more detail on what that means? Sure. So essentially processing is what we do to an archival record to prepare it for access and use by patrons. And this can involve basic preservation tasks and various degrees of rehousing, um, arrangement and description work, and potentially reformatting if necessary. And then, so how do you decide what needs to be processed? Well, so the state archives actually houses a large quantity of records. So for example, if you laid our collections end to end, they would actually cover over 10 linear miles. So that's a lot, and we are adding more every year. So not everything is going to be processed beyond the initial catalog entry created or modified upon accessioning, and not everything needs to be. So for example, you may have committee meeting minutes that are arranged chronologically, and they are what they say they are, they're committee meeting minutes, and they're all arranged chronologically, so adding additional description doesn't really help increase access because you know, okay, like if they're arranged by each month, like April 1960, and you want April 1960 committee meeting minutes, like you don't really need to do additional stuff to have people discover and access these records. So do you have any examples of some criteria about determining processing needs? Yeah, so one of the criteria could be physical condition of the materials. So for example, we have like a whole bunch of maps that came rolled up in a bundle. And so to safely house these records and provide access to patrons, we really need to do further physical processing. So we have to flatten the records and then, you know, put them either roll them in special archival tubes or put them in folders because, you know, maps rolled up in a giant bundle, like patrons can't actually access them that way. And you know, when we're doing this, we may also add more detailed description to the catalog record to um, enhance the description, maybe narrow down dates for specific maps, like that kind of thing. And then another criteria that we look at is reference value. So we might ask ourselves, is this a collection that is frequently requested by patrons and is it accessible in its current state? A really good example of this is the Rockingham County divorce records that were actually mixed in with the criminal actions and the civil actions. So people frequently request divorce records, but they're not easily discoverable or accessible the way they came to us. We had over 200 boxes of criminal actions and civil actions, and the records were arranged not even by year when the case was tried, but the year that the final cost fee was paid. So if a patron is requesting a divorce record, you might have to go through over 200 boxes to find it. And I guess I should note, these divorces weren't actual criminal actions. The Rockingham County sometimes would try civil actions at the criminal term of court. So that's what they were doing in those boxes. And this is a really extreme example, but that's kind of the general idea with like reference value and like why we might process because of that. Do you know, do you know why at all that, that they, ca they came in this way? You said it was unusual? they came in this way? A little bit. So generally, in most cases, the counties will either keep the divorce records separate or they would have them mixed in with civil actions because the divorce action is a civil action. Um, in Rockingham County, for whatever reason, they also tried it at the criminal term of court. And Rockingham County is a county where they did not keep the divorce records separately. So when it came to us, it was just you know completely mixed in and so that's the kind of thing especially with county records why we would make a choice to process something when we otherwise you know if the divorce records were all in boxes on their own we wouldn't necessarily need to process that as much sure that makes sense and it, it's a really great example it, it, it makes me think of sort of confidential information in criminal actions how do you make sure to provide access and keep confidentiality 
Well, that's a great question. So for the criminal actions, we don't really have an issue with the confidential information. Um, generally, these criminal actions are open unless they're sealed by order of the court. So we don't come across that in criminal actions, but we do come across that in a lot of state agency records. And I think a really good example of this is we have community college records, and these have student grades mixed in. And this information has to be removed or redacted before we can provide access to patrons. And as an example, so for the community college records, we might have information about school programs or maybe um, accreditation and that kind of thing. But then there might be student information and grades associated with these programs mixed in. And so at the very least, we have to review this series for confidential information before access can be provided. And then if we need to either, um, you know, redact or remove some of that confidential information. Another criteria that we also look at is sort of that content or research value in the collection. So records might warrant further description and processing because of their potential research value or because they're records that we want to make more discoverable. And one example of this would be the Commissioner of Agriculture speeches file. You know, agriculture has had an important role in North Carolina history and we decided to process this collection because we wanted to enhance description to highlight important content in these speeches. So I feel like when you see Commissioner of Agriculture speeches filed, it doesn't really tell you a lot about what's in there. But there's a lot of stuff related to environmental history, you know, if he's giving speeches when there's droughts or record rainfall, like that kind of thing. And also economic impact that world events had during the Cold War and sort of how that would have affected North Carolina's farmers and agriculture. And there's even culinary history. We discovered some recipes in this collection, which was pretty neat. Yeah, recipes, that, that is neat. What's some more interesting examples from that particular boxer or group? Yeah, so it was really unexpected. Um, we had a series of news releases from the Department of Agriculture related to like the Commissioner of Agriculture's speeches. Um, and one of them was a broiler chicken cooking competition. It was really interesting because it actually had the first, the second, and the third prize winning broiler chicken recipes, I guess, older. So say from like the 1960s, 1970s, 1980s. So it's the kind of recipes I, I haven't come across now. So I think like the winning one might have had like, there was like mandarin oranges and um, sour cream. And you know, it's the kind of thing, I think it would be hard to reproduce now because it's sort of like the general recipe, but I don't even know what a broiler chicken is. So I would have a hard time cooking that. You know, and there's other things too, like I, I guess the governor declared a certain week to be cornbread week. So we have a bunch of cornbread recipes associated with that. Um, and there's a variety of different recipes that just kind of sneak in as part of like the larger agricultural events, which is kind of cool. Yeah, I mean, that, it, it's fascinating. I think it would be really cool to kind of go through and, and chart how recipes have changed, even in the short term, because I mean, it is, a, it's, it's, it's certainly the past, the, the, the 60s through the 80s, but it's we have stuff from the 1880s, and we, we can't put those things together. How, I mean, but then how could we if we can't even put the 60s together, you know? So it would be interesting to see how recipes have changed over time. You mentioned another thing in the Commissioner of Agriculture files. Were you, talking, were you talking about sort of, was there a Cold War reference that I hear? Yeah, so there, the Commissioner of Agriculture gave a speech. It was shortly after the Soviet Union had invaded Afghanistan. And I don't remember completely all the particulars, but I think the gist of it was, I guess the U.S. was stopping the exporting of certain, like, grains or cash crops to, I don't remember if it was the Soviet Union or some other country. So it basically disrupted some international trade, and that was having an effect on the farmers in North Carolina, 
which was kind of a, just a really interesting connection that I didn't really expect to come across. Um, and you'll come, and I think, you know, that was sort of for the speeches throughout that time period, you can kind of come across things like that. Yeah, for sure. Are there other specific examples that you have, either from this collection or another? Well, I mean, I'll talk about this a little bit later, but I am also processing the emergency management scrapbooks, and a lot of them are related to, like, civil defense activities of the Department of Emergency Management. Well, it was called Civil Defense, Department of Civil Defense at the time. You know, and so there's a lot of information about, like, fallout shelters, and I think... I think the dates also span during the Cuban Missile Crisis, and so then there's a lot of newspaper clippings related to the, the actions of the department related to that, um, which is pretty interesting, which again, you wouldn't get from the title, um, Department of Emergency Management Scrapbooks. So that's why we do the description that we do, so people can get an idea of what's in these records. Yeah, I, I'm, I'm, you've drawn me in. De- department of Emergency Management Scrapbooks sounds pretty innocuous, and yet the, what you just, the brief snippet you gave isn't so can you tell us more yeah, sure so that's actually related to another criteria of how we determine processing needs so the department of emergency management scrapbook processing project actually came as a specific re- research request um, it was actually requested by the agency they were working on um, an agency history and so you know they wanted access to these records and the condition in which they came to us was not a way where we could easily provide access so these Scrapbooks had been, the newspaper articles had been taped and glued on, and so when you tried to flip a page, the newspaper clippings were falling off. And so we really had to come up with a way to do physical processing so the scrapbooks could be accessed, and then also, you know, enhance the description so other researchers could use it, because there's a lot of history in there that's not just an agency history. So, for example, there's, as I mentioned before, a lot about Cold War history, There's a lot about local and county history because a lot of it, a lot of the newspaper clippings came from specific counties and it discusses the civil defense actions of that county. So it's very like local history, but then also like the wider national story, as I alluded to when I mentioned like the Cuban Missile Crisis. Um, you know, there's a lot of talk about where were the fallout shelters. Like, there's also a list of what you need to stock in your fallout shelter. So, how many cans of, wa- of canned water you need, um, just like the various things that you would need to have two week supply in your fallout shelter. Not sure it was supposed to happen after the two weeks, but, <laughs> but there were lists of that. You know, and so that was sort of a way once we are processing this with our description, we want to kind of highlight sort of the other uses it could have. There's also a lot of environmental history too in there um, because it does trace natural disaster response in North Carolina. So if there were like hurricanes or really bad storms, like that's also documented in these scrapbooks. And this is a situation where we've had to do a lot more maybe physical processing than in other ones where we may just be refoldering things. But in this case, you know, we had to remove the newspaper clippings and then house them in acid-free folders, but we were also very conscious to mark like what page the newspaper clippings came from, because the thing about a scrapbook is that there's importance in how the newspaper clippings are grouped together, and we certainly didn't want to lose that. And so that's essentially how we approached that collection. And you know, just like how we make decisions about what warrants further processing, we also make decisions about levels of processing. And I think I've kind of alluded to that with the Department of Emergency Management scrapbooks, but not everything will or needs to be processed at the same level of detail. That's to the granular level. You're talking about not only are you you're grouping the the newspaper articles that are in the scrapbook, you're, you're noting where they were 
in in their context, in, in that scrapbook, so that somebody can see how they were organized previously and then the new organizational method that you're using, if there is a new organizational method. So that level, I mean, that's extremely detailed, but certainly there are, are different levels of processing. So could you go into that a little bit? Yeah, sure. So essentially, when we think about different levels of processing, um, we really make evaluations about sort of what needs to process, be processed, and then we kind of think about sort of two main things. One of them is we kind of look at the physical condition, and the ex emergency management scrapbook example I gave you is an example of, you know, having to process something because of physical condition, and we kind of process it at a much more granular level. And we really kind of think like what actions need to be taken to preserve these records in the long term and render them able to be safely handled by patrons in the search room. Um, and I think Ruth also has another great example of having to process because of physical condition. Yeah, thanks Alex. So a good example of this is the very first records that I processed here almost 10 years ago. There was a series of county court records that needed to be rehoused. The records themselves were in good condition, but their shucks were crumbling and falling apart. So shucks are basically cardboard pockets that held early court records. These had gotten brittle and we were losing valuable information that was on the outside of the shuck. All I had to do was copy the information from the shuck to the folder and put the record in the folder. The project didn't require doing anything with the records except for briefly looking at them to make sure they were in numerical order. But even when you don't have to look at the records, an archivist can't help but to see and absorb information. I noticed that in the 1920s, there were a lot of records about revenuers who were often everyday citizens deputized to track down moonshiners. But in the 1930s and 40s, those records went away after prohibition ended, and there was a predominance of automobile-related cases. So after prohibition ended, law enforcement was kept busy with essentially reckless driving because cars were on the road before there were any regulations about cars or drivers. Even when doing minimal processing, you can't help but be drawn into some records. But anyway, Alex, back to you. Well, before, before uh, oh. swapping off, I think I just wanna, I got a few follow-up questions on that. I think, how did, how was the description in the records? How did you know that that was, I mean, you know, is, was it written like that? Was it written that way? Or how, how, was, how did it show up in the actual document? So these were pretty early records. So what's really cool about early records is that there weren't as many rules and regulations on how everything had to be written down. So you got a lot more of a narrative style. So um, I spent a lot more time with these records than I probably needed to because they were interesting. Um, but there was most likely depositions from different people involved. Um, and like I said, they, they just, told things in more of a narrative. And this was the, about the court case, so it probably had what people were verbally saying, either to a coroner or to a judge. So that's what makes it you know, so unique. Yeah, for sure. And then in the other case, you're talking about um, revenuers who are, who are out there trying, you know, using their skills to find moonshiners. Um, I just think it's fascinating that they then use their skills to track down you know reckless drivers in in a in a in a, in a lawless time right so i how was that described you got to remember they're still driving on horse roads where horses with trail with um carriages are going 
And so there aren't speed limit signs, there aren't directionals. Um, I don't, it would be really fascinating to just look at how, uh, you know, the course of regulation came into play with automobiles because we know that people only create rules when somebody's messed up. Yeah, that's, that's right. I mean, I'm sure there's not a horse roundabout, but there <laughs> certainly were after the car was invented. I mean, that, that, that just tracks exactly what you're saying. So now th th that, that was a great example of sort of physical conditions and then you know, minimal processing. What other processing actions are there that we want to talk about? Well, actually, in addition to physical condition, I think maybe it makes sense to also talk about sort of the other main criteria for um, you know, how we determine the different levels of processing. Because once you know what level you need to process something down to, then you kind of get an idea of all these different actions that you might take. And so one of the other big things is access and discoverability. So we also kind of look at like what processing arrangement and description actions need to be undertaken to allow patrons to discover and access these records. So it might be a situation where something's, you know, unlike Ruth's example with the Buncombe County criminal actions, the records might be in perfectly fine condition, but you, you just can't find anything in them. And so then you kind of have to decide like how much do I have to process so people can access these records and discover the information they need. Um, and I think Ruth has an example of sort of processing something with different levels of processing related to access and discoverability. Yes, providing access is so important. And this reminds me of pretty much the most interesting collection I have ever processed at the archive, which was a patron access request. So a researcher was looking for materials on Lieutenant Lawrence Oxley who was an African-American who'd worked under FDR as a member of his black cabinet, which advised the president on African-American issues. The researcher traced Oxley to an unprocessed collection at the state archive, and I was charged with processing it. The materials were from an agency called the Bureau of Work Among Negroes. Now, the Bureau of Work Among Negroes was the African-American social service agency during Jim Crow. It was staffed solely by African-Americans to provide social services to the African-American community, and Oxley was responsible for getting the agency off the ground. I ended up doing a very high level of processing to this collection for two reasons. They were social service records, and they might contain confidential information, so I had to review every single page. Very quickly while doing that, I realized that this collection had a lot of historical value. It spoke not only to the social service needs of African-Americans at the time, which was something that the government had never concerned itself with before, but it also showed the challenges of being an African-American social worker during Jim Crow while working for a black community under a predominantly white government. In order for this collection to be more accessible, I processed and described it at the folder level, which is unusual. We usually process state agency records at a box level. I also made different weeding decisions. Generally, we remove things like schedules, low-level budget materials, and personnel matters from collections. But I chose to keep some of this information, and I'm going to read an excerpt of some personnel correspondence so you can see why. So just a little context, Lieutenant Oxley was recruiting African-American staff from up north, and this is the exchange between him and a stenographer. I also want to just give a little disclaimer here that some of this language is racially sensitive. So in the first letter, Lieutenant Oxley writes to the stenographer, I am favorably inclined to recommend your appointment. Before doing so, however, 
I would like to know whether you could adapt yourself to a Southern situation. I am a Bostonian by birth and training and know some of the inhibitions and fear complexes held by us New Englanders. Won't you write me a full letter giving your reactions to the above thought? So she responds to him, Dear Mr. Oxley, before filing my application in your office, I gave serious thought to prejudice, segregation, Jim Crowism, etc., that I might meet with in North Carolina. Since I have been from home, I have lived mostly in Pennsylvania and New Jersey, and race relations here are quite semi-Southern. And two, while attending minor normal in Washington, D.C., and spending a part of my summer in Virginia, two years ago, I became pretty well acquainted with cracker rule. Therefore, I dare say, North Carolina will not be very hard for me to get accustomed to. However, I trust someone will give me a general idea of where I can trespass without embarrassment. And later in the conversation, she goes on to say, and two, I've decided that my best weapon to get along down in Raleigh will be several bottles of glue to keep my mouth in place. So under normal circumstances, this material would have been removed because it was a personnel matter. But I chose to leave it in because of the historical value it added to the collection. Can you say a little bit more about what the historical value that you sort of perceived in, the, in this collection? So the Bureau of the Work Among Negroes, which we now call the African American Social Work Collection, is pretty unique in that, as I mentioned earlier, because it's an early group of records, it contains some materials that are really kind of off the cuff, things that you wouldn't necessarily see, such as this very open, raw conversation between Lieutenant Oxley and black women in New England states. And it also shows the nuances of what a lot of these social workers were having to contend with. In the beginning, they had to kind of get people to come from the New England states because there wasn't a group of African-American social workers in North Carolina because of the uh, history of slavery here. So it spoke to that but then one of the other things that I found really fascinating was how this institution did its work. The white social workers and the white social work agencies had a whole network in place because they had been around a lot longer. So the work that they did was usually through other institutions. They went through the court systems, the hospitals, the schools. But because of the separate but equal doctrine, the social work agency for African Americans didn't have that outlet because all these other institutions were brand new too. You know, we had brand new African-American schools, African-American hospitals that were just being built. So they had to do their work in a wholly different way. And they did it in the same way, the same, they used the same grassroots methods that civil rights workers used when they were building their momentum. So that was really fascinating. Um, in fact, this collection went on to be used several times after this researcher for it, by grad students who worked on civil rights projects and also by genealogists who were collecting lists of African Americans because in the record group there were several civic organizations and it listed the groups of the members. Oh, that's great. So that's fascinating. It, it shows this trend and connections and, and you really, you wouldn't have gotten there 
had you not had this request, which made you then have to go read through each document, and without reading each document, you wouldn't have been able to highlight the fact that there's some of these personnel records, it's not just like, oh, X was hired on Y date. It's There's a back and forth that kind of shows just what people were thinking and how hard some decisions were, whereas maybe today those decisions don't seem as difficult. Maybe they do, maybe they don't, and that's what keeping this record will help kind of show that broader arc of history. That's exactly right. Excellent. That's terrific. Imagine exploring 400 years of history from the comfort of your home with a nice glass of sweet tea in hand. The good news is that you don't have to imagine it. Check out dozens of digitized collections from the State Archives of North Carolina at your convenience, all online at digital.ncdcr.gov. Now back to the show. So are there other criteria of processing actions that we want to talk about? Well, I think the main ones really are sort of the physical condition and the access and discoverability, and then sort of, as I mentioned before, all the other criteria that sort of impacts whether or not we're going to process something. But, you know, and really when it comes to processing, there's a lot of different actions that you can take, but sort of these intellectual, I guess, intellectual thoughts about physical condition, what do I have to do to make them you know, accessible and preserved, and then access and discoverability, and then some of the sort of thought processes that Ruth discussed when she's thinking, okay, like, you know, what am I going to keep? How am I going to do the weeding? That's kind of like this, like, first step that you kind of come up with an approach. And then there's a lot of different processing actions that you can take. So, for example, we might rehouse and refolder, and that's, like, at the most basic level. We might do weeding. So are there records mixed in that are non-archival and, unlike in Ruth's example, don't really have a lot of historical value? And by non-archival, I mean, you know, they're not listed as an item on the functional schedule to be retained, and there doesn't seem to be larger historical value, or there may even just be stacks of duplicate. We don't need the same, I guess, the same report like five times in a collection. Sometimes we might redact confidential information if, as in like Ruth's case, we come across something that does have historical value, but, you know, we would need to, you know, redact people's names because, you know, personnel records are confidential, then we'd have to go about and do that redaction. We may also just inventory or create a container list. Um, and sometimes we'll do that with county records for quick reference. Like, let's say we just processed a bunch of estates. We know people are going to be looking for estates. We might just make this container list so then, you know, reference can just quickly look up a person's last name to see if we have that record. Um, we may end up enhancing description in catalogs. So we may add additional and more descriptive notes. So for Commissioner of Agriculture speeches, I may make notes about, you know, the recipes found in the collection so people know that those records are there. In some cases, we'll create a finding aid, and this really creates more detailed contextual or structural information about a series or collection. This is definitely much more of a um, granule sort of level of processing. And then in some cases, we may have to actually reformat records. Let's, let's talk about that last one. What's reformatting about? I'm going to weigh in on that. Reformatting is basically when a record comes to us in one form, but we change it to another in order to preserve and provide access to it. We might change the form of a record because it's fragile, difficult to use, or takes up too much space. For example, we might get a series of records from an agency that has newspaper clippings in it. Newspaper is an unstable and acidic medium. You could probably all remember that, it, you know, you see how yellow things are when they're around newspaper. So in order to preserve the information and protect the materials it is housed with, we might copy that clipping onto acid-free paper and then weed the original. But most of the reformatting that the archives does is turning paper or electronic records into microfilm, 
And as head of the imaging unit, this is one of the things that I'm in charge of. Well, let me stop you there. Microfilm, that seems, you know, maybe, uh, maybe I'm, I'm missing something here, but that seems sort of an old medium, an old technology, an old way of doing things. There's not a more, there's not a more recent way of preserving these new acidic newspapers. I mean, I get that they sort of degrade easily, but microfilming, that seems a little bit outdated, no? A lot of people think that. A lot of people are shocked and astounded that we are still making tons of microfilm to this day. I, I have an entire department that works on making microfilm. And the reason is that microfilm and paper are the gold standards for long-term preservation. In case there's no technology, you don't have access to your computer, the electricity's out, the zombie apocalypse, and you know nobody can get anything, you can still read microfilm. All you need is a source of light and a magnifying glass. You don't need any fancy technology. Even though we have the readers in the search room, you can still just look at the microfilm with a strong magnifying glass. So that's why it's the gold standard for preservation and access. It's also incredibly stable, and if it's kept in the right environmental circumstances, it can last over 400 years. That's a good long time. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, most of the things that we transferred to microfilm are scheduled to be microfilmed and destroyed by their disposition in the record schedule. Um, these are generally records that have a very specific permanent value and then in paper format are voluminous and take up a lot of space. For example, adoption records are vital records that have permanent value, but because of North Carolina public records law, and confidentiality, very few people have the right to access them, and so they're seldom requested. However, there are large series with hundreds of boxes transferred to us each year. So putting them on microfilm saves space while still ensuring that they'll be accessible if needed. This also ensures that if original records in a county courthouse or a register of deeds office, or even in our own facility, are damaged due to a natural disaster or something, then the state has a backup of the most valuable records of the state. We also reformat things to microfilm in order to preserve them and provide better access. For example, North Carolina's original land grants are some of the oldest and most requested records in the archives. The originals are sometimes very large and can be fragile. So in order to meet the high demand of researchers without causing further damage to these records, we put them all on microfilm. So we keep the security copies of the microfilm in the controlled space in the vault, and we make copies of the film that's highly requested for research, such as land grants, deeds, and other records, and we put those in the search room so that the public has easy access to them. Yeah, that all makes sense to me. I mean, you're talking about preservation and access, and, and you know, you've converted me on microfilm. <laughs> I, well, yeah. I'll, I'll think of it now as, as a, as a future-looking technology, not an old technology. That's excellent. <laughs> <laughs> But yeah, basically all the decisions that we make about processing and reformatting in the state archives is about preserving and providing the best access possible to North Carolina's records. That's why I was excited to do this podcast in order to promote access. So many people think that government records are dry or boring or too routine or too complex when the truth is they can be fun and fascinating and full of historical value, as you can see by all the cool stuff we have talked about today. Processing archivists like me and Alex, we get a front row seat to see all of this. I can't even count how many times I've had a hmm or an aha or even something more gut-wrenching than that come to me when I was processing records. And we live and love to share these moments with others, even if it means doing some things that are 
kind of outside of our normal work, like a podcast. Yeah, that's all, all great. I mean, the passion comes through. I hear it. I think it would be great to sort of, you know, you hear Processing Archivist and you think, okay, that sounds kind of like a boring job. But then you hear these stories today about, about broiler chickens and about how many cans to put in my two-week bomb shelter, although I don't, two weeks is not altogether that long, but that's fine. We'll figure it out. And then we have these stories about, you know, trends in, in race relations in, in the state. And, you know, it's really fascinating. And you get the front row seat. So processing archivist is not a boring job. On, on the contrary, it's a terrific job. But at this point, I'd like to thank you, Ruth, and thank you, Alex, for sharing your knowledge of how we process collections and of the collections themselves. You, you really you connected the docs for us here today. Thank you for letting us talk about the stuff that we love. <laughs> sure thing. Yeah, thank you so much. I'm always happy to talk about you know the records that I'm processing and just the really neat stuff that's in these state agency records. It's maybe not apparent from the title of the series, but when you really get down into it, there's a lot of neat stuff in there. That's for sure. That's for sure. And thank you for listening to part two in our series about the journey of an archival record. If you would like to catch up, episode one, Records Appraisal, is available. And stay tuned for next time when we dive into the wonderful world of digitization and access. So finally, thank you to our guests, Alex Dowry and Ruth Cody, to our producers, Brooke Chuka, Shauna Carr, and Josh Hager, and to the voice you hear at the beginning and end of each episode, Judy Allen Dotson. Thanks for joining us this week on Connecting the Docs. Make sure to visit our website, connectingthedocs.podbean.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or via RSS, so you'll never miss a show. While you're at it, if you found value in this show, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would help us out too. If you like this show, you might want to check out our blog, History for All the People at ncarchives.wordpress.com. <laughs>